Hi, this is Eugenio Duarte. I hope you enjoy the interview you're about to listen to. If you do, or if you have ideas for books you'd like to hear about on the show, let me know. Go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on contact to send me a message. And now on with the interview. Hi, everybody. This is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte in Miami. Today, I'm speaking to Morgan Marietta, co-author along with David Barker of the book, One Nation, Two Realities, Dueling Facts in American Democracy, published in 2019 by Oxford University Press. Morgan Marietta is Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts Lowell, where he studies the political consequences of belief. His prior books include The Politics of Sacred Rhetoric, Absolutist Appeals and Political Influence, as well as A Citizen's Guide to American Ideology, Conservatism and Liberalism in Contemporary Politics. He and co-author David Barker write the Inconvenient Facts blog at Psychology Today, and he is currently writing about the, the new Supreme Court and the future of rights and the conjunction of dueling facts and constitutional law in a book called The Supreme Court of Facts. Morgan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me this morning. Our pleasure. So let's start by talking about the inspiration for this book. I suppose it started in about 2010 when Dave and I started talking about this phenomenon. And I guess I should say that Dave and I go way back. Uh, we were just talking the other day, about 20 years now that we've known each other. At, uh, back from when I was a graduate student, he was a beginning assistant professor. And um, around 2010, uh, we started talking about this phenomenon that we were seeing, that people had these tremendously divided polarized perceptions of facts. And it seemed to be a new kind of polarization. It wasn't just about ideology. Uh, it wasn't about culture or uh, media, geography, wealth. Uh, it had seemed to have advanced to a new form of advanced polarization about reality itself. And we started talking about this more and more, what was going on. And we started collecting data on it in 2013. Uh, and then what happened that made it all much more interesting, I think, is Donald Trump. Uh, and what happened then is this tremendous conversation blew up around 2015, 2016 about alternative facts and the Trump campaign, tremendous discussion of misinformation and uh, the ability of fact checking. Uh, and one of the first points that we came to uh, is that what the book tries to do is do a very comprehensive look at the, uh, the causes of doing fact perceptions, the consequences of them, the, the possible correctives of them. But one of our first points is that this is not really about uh, Trump or the Trump administration. It started way before that. Uh, we're sure it's going to continue way beyond that. People who think that in a post-Trump world, uh, that uh, alternative facts, dueling fact perceptions are going to go away, are going to be deeply disappointed. Uh, we think it's actually deeply entrenched uh, we're rather pessimistic about the future of it, uh, and it's going to be a deep and long-term phenomenon. But that's how it started, was uh, this long conversation that we've been having, and we've been working on the book now for, I guess, about the past uh, six, seven years. So let's go straight to, I guess, the core concept of the book, which you just named, and that is dueling fact perceptions. Now, what exactly does that mean? I mean, how can facts be dueling? Yeah, this is actually, I think, one of the, the first and really important parts of the book. We use this framework of 
the causes, consequences, and correctives. And we think these are the three uh, huge social science concepts that uh, what is causing something, uh, what is that then causing, and can you do anything about this? But the fourth one really is about the concept, the, the concept itself. There's tremendous disagreement about what the concept is and what is really going on here. Uh, a lot of people are very uncomfortable of even using this discussion of perceptions of facts. They think that, oh, no, 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 facts are just facts. There's just reality. Uh, there's truth and there's lies. That is not true. That is not right at all. Uh, people uh, really misunderstand the idea that there is, of course, a reality out there. Uh, Dave and I are... Uh, uh, not people who uh, deny reality, or we are um, not uh, uh, deconstructionists or uh, postmodernists. Uh, reality is there. The problem has always been for humans that we don't have a clear grasp of reality. We don't have this tremendous immediate access to knowing what the truth is. Going back to Plato's cave, we only have these indications of it. So the problem is that we don't have stable facts, which is to say, facts are not reality. Facts are a social uh, attempt to approximate reality. And what that means is facts are the things that reflect the best available evidence, and they're endorsed by the authorities of society that give us a sense of this. But we always uh, don't agree on this and know about these things. There are many, many politically important realities where the facts are not clear. They're much more blurry. Uh, a couple of good examples of this, uh, they're the ones that are really more clear, like say climate change. Uh, but then you move to ones that are not clear at all, like say false convictions. There's this tremendous debate in our society about how rare or how common false convictions are. People who say that they know the truth of that, um, it, that is not clear at all that it's true. You take the national debt. Is the national debt this tremendous problem, uh, or is it not? Uh, listeners might know that among economists, this is deeply debated. There's a new strain of what's called modern monetary theory, this idea that maybe the debt actually isn't very real or significant at all. A lot of these things... Uh, are not clear. The effects of the minimum wage is deeply debated. Uh, effects of immigration are deeply debated. Uh, so the problem is that we don't have access to facts. A lot of people call this whole debate misinformation. And what they mean by misinformation or misperceptions is that they're already sure what the facts are. And the problem is that we have both legitimate differences in perceptions. And then, of course, a broad range of illegitimate differences in perceptions. But in either case, they're hard to sort out which is which. What we know we have is tremendous differences in perception. And we didn't try to sort out in the book who was right and wrong on each one of these. There's about 10 different doing fact perceptions that we study. And we didn't try to sort it out. We're not the experts on those facts. Uh, we tried to become the experts on the perceptions of those facts, why people see them so differently, what is really driving it. And we came to the idea that we really shouldn't call them uh, misperceptions, misinformation, because that's assuming you know which one is real. They are really dueling perceptions of the facts or dueling fact perceptions. And that, I think, is the heart of the issue. So, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, one more quick thing. I wanted to mention this one because I love it so much. Uh, people, 
when they talk about facts, uh, they often quote the uh, old John Adams line uh, that facts are stubborn things uh, in their assertion that there are only facts and lies. Uh, but people forget actually the, the context of that. Uh, they quote the, the first part of the line, facts are stubborn things. And whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. And that sounds like this uh, dramatic statement. And they always forget the next sentence, which is, nor is the law less stable than the fact. If, and if an assault was made to endanger their lives, the law is clear. They had a right to kill in their own defense. And what's going on here is Adams is the defense attorney. Uh, in the Boston Massacre, he's defending the soldiers who are accused of this crime. And his statement that st facts are stubborn things, what he's saying is that the stubborn fact is that these soldiers were attacked and defended themselves, and there was, in fact, no Boston Massacre. Now, that's the exact opposite fact of the one that I was taught as a kid and most Americans believe. Most Americans believe there was, in fact, a Boston Massacre, and the British soldiers acted improperly. Uh, so there's a real question here of which is the fact and which is the alternative fact and uh, which is which. Uh, the, the irony is the great statement that most people use to justify the idea that facts are obvious. Uh, the people who are saying it also think that the opposite fact that Adams is talking about is the obvious fact. And uh, we often live in a situation where there are not obvious facts. I, and with that said, I wanted to, I was hoping to go back to the example of climate change because because it seems like that, and, and I think that you hint at this in the book, it seems like that that's an area where one would expect to find hard facts, uh, numbers and scientific indicators that, that the planet is uh, getting warmer and that that is having real consequences. So when we see that society is divided about whether climate change exists, how how do you how do you understand that? I mean, is it that people believe different facts, or is it that people are disputing what are actual what the facts are, or is it that they can agree to the facts but interpret them differently? Climate change is the one that Dave and I uh, started talking about this whole project around 2010, what was becoming really clear in the evidence, and there's a, a lot of fantastic empirical evidence and articles on this, that at the same time when all of the evidence of climate change, and especially uh, global warming as a facet of climate change, when the evidence was becoming more and more clear, uh, people were becoming more and more divided about it. And they were denying that evidence more and more as the evidence got larger and larger. And we kept saying around 2010, 2011, 2012, this is going to have to change. This is going to have to switch. Uh, a consensus is going to have to develop that is going to match the consensus of evidence. And then we realized that that was not going to happen. Uh, it still hasn't happened. I don't think it's actually going to happen. <laughs> and this is, is, is why. That... Um, even though that is one of the ones that's very clear, this is uh, one of the uh, sort of the, the, the grandfathers of the, of the great examples of doing fact perceptions in the face of very clear evidence. The problem is that people think that they have very clear access to this. Uh, but the real truth is that people don't have personal access to this information. 
they have to rely on reports from scientists and universities and especially media, which means that truth relies on trust. Access to facts relies on trust. You have to trust the messenger. And that we realized was the problem. People don't trust the source. They don't trust the media. They especially don't trust universities any longer, which is, uh, we have a whole chapter on this that's really quite fascinating. And what that allows people to do is to fall back on the very deep psychology that is driving this. And that takes us to the, the causes of this. A, a great chunk of the book is uh, not just about the consequences and the possible correctives. It's about the, the core cause of this. And we entered into a debate that's going on in political science and in psychology about what is the cause of dueling fact perceptions, what some people call partisan facts. Uh, and there's a large argument that it is about misdirection, that it's about misleading. So it's essentially about partisan leadership, that what people are doing is they are following party leaders, um, they're following media figures, um, say Hannity on Fox or Maddow on MSNBC. And uh, that is the more optimistic view on this. If it's really just misinformation and people are being misled, then we can correct the misperceptions. And all you need to do is provide the accurate evidence. And what Dave and I really uh, uh, started thinking, and then when we studied this more and more, we did five years of surveys on this. Uh, 2013 to 2017, we were collecting national data year after year, looking at this uh, broad range of doing fact perceptions and many other variables that we were looking at. And it turns out that uh, the major drivers, the things that really predict what perception an individual will have, it's not their partisan identity and it's not their media consumption. It's actually their deeply held values. Uh, what people are doing is they are projecting their preferred values onto their perceived facts. And there's a whole process of how this happens. So there's many deep psychologies uh, that people are selectively perceiving. Uh, they are choosing out of the, the broad range of facts we have, or of uh, pieces of information. We have this fantastic amount of information, but very little trust. And in an environment uh, where data bits are high and trust is low, you have no guide of which ones to take. So people just take the ones that suit their values, the ones that make their values look true and right and important, uh, the ones that are grounded in their social connections. Uh, there's a, um, a scholar named Anna Kirkland who wrote about the vaccine debate. And vaccines are fascinating because, again, it's dueling fact perception. That's one that is actually half right and half left. It's actually not conservatives or liberals who think that vaccines cause autism. It's actually both. It's people who share certain values on either side of the debate. And one of her great lines from um, Vaccine Court, her book on this, is that uh, you can never repeat too many times that scientific evidence does not have some mystical ability to change minds. It has to be trusted. And if it isn't trusted, uh, people just reject it. They instead uh, choose the perception that makes their values look uh, important. And if the other side of it isn't just cognitive psychology, it's social psychology, that Kirkland's uh, argument means that if you have a choice of being right 
or fitting in with your social group, the, uh, the advantages of being correct about something like uh, climate change or your perceptions of racism or false convictions or uh, the national debt, it, it, it has very little payoff for you. Uh, but the payoff for being attached to your social group and not alienated from the people uh, that you love and the people who support you, that has fantastic payoff. Uh, so people will choose the perception that matches their social group and matches their personal values uh, way quicker than they will match the ones that uh, alleged experts whom they do not trust say is real. But but going back to this question of trust then, wouldn't it, isn't it the case that people will quote unquote trust those sources of information only who provide the kind of information that they want to hear? Yes, I, I think that is very much true, that uh, people will selectively perceive. Uh, and it's not the case that uh, media consumption has nothing to do with it, or that partisan leadership has nothing to do with it. These do have effects. Uh, they are secondary to the core value effects. But it's, it's, it's definitely the case that people selectively attend to certain messages. Uh, the other thing they do that I wanted to mention, there's um, some deeper parts of the value projection that go into this selective perception. It's not just that they are uh, all starting from the same place, uh, starting from the same questions. You might think that everyone had the same question, is climate change real? Uh, and it turns out that that's not right, that uh, people begin with different questions and therefore arrive at different answers, which means also, as you're suggesting, they go to different sources, they believe and trust different things. Uh, Dave and I call this intuitive epistemology. Uh, this is one of my favorite chapters. I think it's one of the most interesting pieces of psychology uh, in the book. And we take this actually from Phil Tedlock, and uh, we're great admirers of his work. And he suggested this uh, some years ago, that people have different epistemological foundations, which is to say that how they seek knowledge is not the same. People start with different questions. And we tested this out in the context of doing fact perceptions, that if you uh, look at the habitual or intuitive questions that people ask, they are deeply connected to their value systems. If you know someone's values, uh, for example, if they prefer uh, individualism, or collectivism. They think that individuals are essentially responsible for themselves, which is the conservative value that shapes a lot of American policy, or that we are collectively responsible for everyone, which is the liberal value that shapes those perceptions. Uh, people will then have different habitual questions that they ask when they look at the world. Uh, and if you are starting from different questions, you will reach different answers, which is to say that People's intuitive epistemology then frames their perceptions. And this, uh, a lot of people have questioned this idea, given that values and facts are so different. Uh, we're accustomed to the fact-value dichotomy. First of all, there isn't a lot of difference uh, psychologically between facts and values. Scholars break it out, but ordinary folk really don't. Uh, it, this is the bridge. This is how people take their values and project them onto their facts. But when you say that people start from different questions or, or, or with different questions, going back to, you know, the same example, climate change, if someone's not asking, is climate change real? What are the alternative questions from which they start? 
they start uh, questions like, um, is someone being harmed? Uh, or is a uh, sacred value being violated? Uh, or are people being disloyal to us? And uh, it, it's not that everyone is looking at climate change in a vacuum. It's the only thing they're looking at. They're, they're looking at it in this whole web of their social concerns and their value concerns. Uh, so if you start from this perspective of uh, care or harm, Jonathan Haidt has this uh, fascinating way of looking at people's moral values. And care is one that um, is this tremendous predictor on the liberal side of how people see things. And if you start from that perspective, people start to think, oh, we should be uh, worried about these harms. But if you start from a different perspective of um, are certain core values being violated uh, or are people being disloyal to us, uh, then you start to ask questions about the sources themselves. Uh, what people who are uh, denying client change are really saying is that they don't trust the universities who are saying this. Uh, and they think there is some misleading misperception going on there. Uh, this is a fascinating phenomenon that university scholars haven't come to grips with, and we don't really know what to, to do with in the current day. But if you look at the data on trust in universities, uh, it has gone down radically in the last five years uh, among conservatives and Republicans. And this is a real problem because you need a, a trusted arbiter in society. Going back to our first point uh, about facts relying on trust, if you don't have a trusted arbiter, uh, and the university used to fill that role on both sides of the ideological divide, uh, but if it doesn't, uh, then you don't have to listen. So Morgan, are there any correctives for this that is the great question that uh, many different scholars are working on now. Uh, regardless of where people fall out on this causation debate, everyone wants to be able to bring us to consensus because the consequences of this are really deep, uh, much more, I think, than a lot of people are recognizing that it goes way beyond whether um, we can have consensus policy. That If we don't know where we are, as a society, we really can't uh, understand where we're going. Uh, there are tremendous other consequences about whether we really can have meaningful deliberation, uh, whether polarization is going to continue to cycle in this tremendous way. There's uh, some experiments we did in the book I can talk about a bit later um, uh, about the social effects of this, that when people recognize that other Americans have different perceptions of the world. They have these tremendously negative social reactions and don't want to work with them and don't want to talk to them. Uh, we understand that if you're a um, Democrat, someone else is a Republican. But if someone has completely different perceptions of the world than you do, you start to think very negative things about them. Uh, it has all sorts of other consequences that one might not recognize that scandal becomes very difficult. Uh, there's this famous line um, uh, that Donald Trump said during the campaign that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and his supporters wouldn't uh, abandon him. And the thing about that, scandal, for it to be effective, requires that people on the opposing partisan side are also willing to admit that certain facts did occur. If 
facts are truly deeply divided in the way that we believe they are and that they're becoming. Scandal becomes very, very difficult. Uh, accusations of mental illness also, uh, I predict, are going to rise tremendously, not just to politicians, but across the spectrum. One of the basic definitions of insanity is that you don't perceive the world accurately. Um, so doing fact perceptions lead to these perceptions of mental illness. Uh, many of the listeners might know that the, the Goldwater rule is uh, falling apart, which is to say that uh, psychiatrists, psychologists used to be banned um, by convention from diagnosing politicians from afar. But many working psychologists are now quite willing to say publicly that they think that the president is mentally ill. And this is somewhat unprecedented. And it has to do with these dueling fact perceptions. If you disagree about the world, you must be crazy. So tremendous uh, political and social ramifications of this. So the great question is, can we do something about this? Can this be corrected? And uh, Dave and I are deeply pessimistic about this. Uh, to give you the conclusion, we think that the most well-known or most suggested correctives are deeply ineffective. And we are cycling into greater and greater polarization of perceptions. We don't see a, a mechanism to pull us out of this. Uh, so... We wanted to be much more optimistic, and uh, a great part of the book is about empirically looking at possible correctives. And we unfortunately came to very negative views of it. And essentially, this is why there are two very large areas of correctives that people offer. And the first one is fact-checking, that maybe we can really put more effort into fact-checking and publicize it. And uh, there's a lot of work on the epistemology of fact-checking and how this works. And we did some studies on this, and um, it turns out that along with some other people who are studying this, uh, fact-checking is not very effective. In fact, it's not effective at all in changing people's perceptions of facts of this nature. It can have some important effects in discouraging politicians from lying as much. Uh, it can do some other positive things democratically, but it really does not uh, change people's perceptions of facts. The people who should be reading fact checks do not read them. The people who do read them have many psychological mechanisms for dismissing them uh, that have to do with trust, that have to do with uh, their values and their social connections overriding them. Uh, and there's a fascinating thing going on that I wanted to point out that if you talk to a lot of people who are cheerleaders of the fact-checking industry, they are um, deeply in denial about the lack of effectiveness of fact-checking. Uh, in other words, they are not applying their own standards of fact-checking to the facts about fact-checking. Uh, they're not being open and honest and recognizing the empirical evidence here that fact-checking is not working. And I think that's actually a demonstration of the thesis of the book. Fact-checkers have a deep social commitment and they have a deep value commitment to believe that fact-checking works, so therefore they believe that fact-checking works. Uh, but it doesn't. And uh, the other one that's actually really disturbing for us and a lot of other scholars, a lot of other educators, is education is the other very uh, broad idea that greater education really ought to pull us out of this. And this is the deeply disturbing finding from all of our studies, and this is, I think, some of the most important stuff in the book, that education does not work either. 
we actually can't educate our way out of this. The more formal education people have, the more divided they are about perceptions of facts across the board, climate change, racism, crime rates, vaccines, debt, immigration, minimum wage, all of these things. Uh, they don't move toward consensus. They move toward division. And uh, there's another, maybe even bigger problem, that if you look at the connections between values and facts that people are really uh, projecting their beliefs onto their perceptions, the more education people have, the more strongly they do that. Uh, that if you look at these interactions, education doesn't lessen uh, value projection. It deeply increases it. And what that uh, seems is going on is that uh, people aren't listening to the content of the education. They're gaining skills in their education. And then they take those skills, and these people with higher cognitive abilities are then using them to reach the conclusions that they want. Uh, so it turns out we can't fact check our way out of this and we can't educate our way out of this, which means that we're not getting out of this. Now, just to be clear on, on your, what you found from your studies, are, when you say that higher education does not resolve this, this, these differences and the fact of dueling fact perceptions, is that assuming that uh, higher education is distributed evenly across the board. Like, is that like if everybody were to be more educated, not just certain um, people in certain camps? You're saying even still, that would not that would not bring people closer to a consensus if people on both sides of the aisle were more educated. Uh, so that's that's interesting. Um, I mean, I don't want to uh, extrapolate outside of the uh, data set about we know that. Uh, what we were able to look at and what uh, uh, scholars were able to really see is, is the effect of education on people. Uh, the Sort of the hypothetical of different people. You mean if, if um, education were more egalitarian, if we were actually able to educate a broader uh, number of people? But I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I guess I wonder, a, a, a hidden question in my first question is, is part of the explanation for dueling fact perceptions difference difference in in education, you mean among liberals and conservatives, or you mean uh, yeah, yeah right, as an right, example, right. Um, sure. Um, this is another fascinating uh, part of this that we have a chapter on this, uh, and again, this is something that uh, it, it's it's fascinating when you really uh, scratch into the evidence. You find a lot of things that uh, you don't expect and the, that people don't necessarily want to hear. But there's a very popular argument that uh, dueling fact perceptions or uh, misinformation misperceptions are asymmetric to ideology, which is to say that this is something that conservatives do, uh, and it's not something that liberals do. And this is a reaction that we get a great deal of the time. Uh, Chris Mooney has written a lot about this and some other figures. Uh, and the, the problem is that when you start looking at the data on this, that's, that's really not right. Uh, other scholars have noted this also, that it's it's not asymmetric in the way that people assume that it's only conservatives who are projecting their values into the facts and, and liberals are um, doing things honestly. It turns out that uh, both sides do this in the data, that both are taking their values and projecting them into their facts. And this is not just both siderism of saying, that, oh, well, both sides do. The, the evidence really does indicate that that's the case. And there's um, something going on. There is a, uh, an effect going on about conservatives not trusting universities. 
that is a conservative phenomenon and which is causing them to reject a lot of university evidence. And it allows people on the right to say that, well, even with climate change, the evidence is dramatic, but it's all produced by liberal faculty. Uh, and therefore, we can not take it seriously. But um, when there are cases where the university evidence does not support their values, uh, liberals are just as quick to not listen to the evidence and substitute their values. Uh, it's true when it comes to vaccines. It's very much true when it comes to uh, perceptions of gender. Uh, there's tremendous neurological evidence that has been developing over recent years that there are actually gender differences in uh, different brain dynamics. And people on the left who have a different commitment will absolutely not pay attention to that evidence in the same way that conservatives don't pay attention to university evidence of things that don't fit their uh, social connections and their value systems. There's also some really interesting ways in which there is asymmetry on the reverse side. One of the fascinating things that we found is that when you look at the social effects, uh, if you look at the uh, rejection um, and the refusal to work with people or deal with people who hold perceptions that are different from your own, uh, it's actually liberals rather than conservatives who are more likely uh, to ostracize people who dispute their perceptions of the world. So, uh, and this is a, a fascinating one that uh, we decided that one way to think about this is that the traditional argument that uh, liberals are more tolerant, uh, more accepting, tolerance is for morality, but not for reality. Uh, that the, the liberal view of the liberal behavior is to tolerate moral differences, but not to necessarily tolerate perceptual differences. Toleration is for morality, not reality. So let's talk about the consequences of all this, because in the opening of the book, you make a claim that really <laughs> struck me. You, you claim that all of this leads to, quote, the degradation of civil society. And when I read that part, I thought, really, is it that serious? Yeah, I'm afraid that we think it is, that um, a lot of other people have also talked about the, the clearly political problem, that if we can't understand where we are, we really can't come to consensus on where we're going. But it's even deeper, it's even uh, more problematic, I think, that uh, when you look at the, the social side of it, and we did these really interesting experiments, um, which were a combination of looking at social media and doing fact perceptions, that uh, the idea is these are what we refer to as the Bob experiments, that uh, there's this guy, Bob Stratford, uh, and we ask people, if you are going to be working on a long-term project uh, at your job, uh, and your uh, boss has told you that uh, you have the option of working with this guy, Bob Stratford, and you've never met Bob before, so you do the obvious thing that people do these days, is you look him up online, uh, and you look at his Twitter feed, and then uh, in the experiment, we alternate uh, Bob saying different things in his Bobbish way uh, uh, on his Twitter feed of suggesting that climate change is true or that it's false or that racism is very influential or that it no longer is uh, or vaccines are real or they're not or um, uh, immigration is having these very negative economic consequences or it's having these positive ones. Uh, and then asking people if they want to do things like work with Bob. 
And it turns out that there is massive rejection wholesale of Bob uh, if he disputes people's perceptions of the world. And we think what this indicates is that there's going to be, there, there already is, and there's going to be more of this spiraling polarization that it uh, is infecting not just politics and discussion, but social relations and the tremendous uh, polarization of a bubble effect. And then it goes back to some of the things that I mentioned before, that scandal becomes quite impossible, uh, perceptions of events. We did these some really interesting looks at some recent events. You could think of the Jussie Smollett case. Uh, why did people have such tremendously different perceptions of what happened there? And uh, many people were unwilling to readjust their beliefs when new evidence came out. Uh, we did a couple of looks at the Trayvon Martin shooting of what was causing, and that was actually a, t a tremendously divided perception uh, after the trial and before of, of what happened there. And it turns out that uh, partisanship uh, plays a role, media consumption plays a role, but the much larger role is people's core values, that they're allowing their values to determine their perceptions. And if we can't agree on events and we can't agree on things like uh, who our enemies are. This is actually going to be a, a tremendous problem, I think, in the future of dueling fact perceptions. Uh, is Russia our enemy or not? Is China our enemy or not in certain ways? If we can't agree on these things, in the Cold War, we had a broad agreement on who our enemy was. We disagreed about how to handle it, but much of our core perceptions were the same. Um, I also think we're heading to a massive debate about socialism. Uh, I think this is on the horizon about the facts of it, uh, not uh, one's idea of just the values of individualism, collectivism, but the the, the facts of uh, history and reality. Does socialism lead to positive outcomes? Uh, uh, does it lead to very negative outcomes? And we're about to enter into, I think, a long-term, deeply uh, divided factual debate about that. And I think we are leading into an era of increasing division driven by facts and not just by partisanship and values. So we're almost out of time, Morgan. But before we go, tell us about uh, your next book, The Supreme Court of Facts. Oh, right, right. This is actually um, a combination of some interest in the Supreme Court uh, and an extension of this research that Dave and I have been doing. Uh, uh, one of the contradictions of my life is that I do both work in political psychology and in the Supreme Court. And I think they're the same thing, but no one else does. But I think they're the same thing because uh, it's about belief systems. It's about the political consequences of belief. And to understand American politics, you have to understand value perceptions or uh, values. You have to understand fact perceptions, ideologies. The Supreme Court has a very strong set of belief systems that are just more esoteric and they're more legal. Uh, but once you understand them, you can really understand what is going on there. Uh, but uh, the new book is called The Supreme Court of Facts, and I'm working with uh, Tyler Farley, uh, who uh, uh, was a student at UMass Lowell, uh, and we've written a couple things on this, uh, Journal of Law and Courts. The uh, Supreme Court is taking an increasing role 
in these arbitrations of facts in our society. And there's an old thesis that the Supreme Court takes up a lot of the problems in society that we can't solve. And that seems to be happening in the factual realm, that what's going on is the Supreme Court is one of the few remaining trusted arbiters in our society. And increasingly, we're turning to the court to decide facts of what is true and not true. One of the um, recent interesting debates at the Supreme Court was about the nature of racism. And listeners who are familiar uh, with the recent debate uh, about the uh, Voting Rights Act, the question that came to the court is whether racism is still powerful in persuading, in, in dissuading, in blocking voting in the South. And that's not a constitutional question. That's not about constitutional principle or theory. That's a question of reality. Either racism is still blocking black voting in the South, or it is not. Uh, and PolitiFact had this fascinating check of the Chief Justice, John Roberts, uh, in some of his comments in the oral arguments of how he was framing how you would know that question, how you would know the empirical evidence of whether racism is still powerful or not powerful. Uh, and this is the conjunction of what the Supreme Court does and what PolitiFact does. Who gets to be the arbiter? Is it PolitiFact? Uh, is it factcheck.org? Uh, is it Snopes? Uh, is it universities? Is it now the Supreme Court? And the answer, we think, is increasingly it's going to be the Supreme Court. And that's going to have tremendous political ramifications, uh, and it's going to have tremendous ramifications about how the Supreme Court operates. So before we go, remind our listeners the name of your blog and how they find it. Uh, right, right. Um, after One Nation, Two Realities came out, Psychology Today, the magazine, they have this uh, tremendous blog system of a lot of different interesting people. Uh, and uh, it's called Inconvenient Facts. And this is a line that we use in One Nation, Two Realities. Uh, it comes from the old Max Weber line in politics as a society uh, that the role of a teacher is to explain inconvenient facts, facts that are inconvenient for people's partisan perceptions. George Orwell used that line also. Uh, and the idea of the Inconvenient Facts blog is that we have short pieces describing different facets of what we've done in the book and applying it uh, to different events. Uh, we started talking about the Mueller report and how the Mueller report, people's reactions to it, uh, listeners know that there's tremendous factual disagreement about what even a document says. What does the Mueller report actually say? Uh, and the reason that we're so divided is everything uh, uh, that uh, we've just been talking about. And the Mueller report is both a, um, it's a facet of the dueling facts phenomenon, but uh, we were saying the other day at the blog that it's also causing more of it. It's, it's leading to more of these divided fact perceptions because what we thought was going to be a trusted arbiter, Robert Mueller, uh, turned out to not give an answer. Uh, and if, he, if even the trusted prosecutor, who's deeply experienced and knowledgeable about things, if uh, Bob Mueller can't come to a clear answer uh, about uh, uh, collusion and... <clears throat> Pardon me. He can't come to a clear 
answer about obstruction, then normal people are not going to be able to do that. And they're just going to project their values into their perceptions. Uh, so, um, yeah, uh, uh, inconvenient facts at uh, Psychology Today will be continuing with a, a weekly blog post. And people should make sure to check out, like I said, your next book, The Supreme Court of Facts. And they should check out the book that we talked about today, which is called again, One Nation, Two Realities, Dueling Facts in American Democracy. Morgan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me.